Good afternoon, this is Resonance 104.4 FM and this is Volcanoes, Bees and Jesuits, a weekly half an hour of chat about Jesuits, volcanoes and bees. Sorry, it's not, I'm completely the wrong programme. This is Hooting Yard on the Air. My name is Frank Key and I'm going to read to you um, for half an hour as ever. Um, Nothing about bees or volcanoes or Jesuits. But here's a note about pigs. From the grossness of his feeding, from the large amount of aliment he consumes, his gluttonous way of eating it, from his slothful habits, laziness and indulgence in sleep, the pig is particularly liable to disease, and especially indigestion, heartburn and affections of the skin, wrote Isabella Beaton in her Book of Household Management. 1861. Going on to note, to counteract the consequence of a violation of the physical laws, a powerful monitor in the brain of a pig teaches him to seek for relief and medicine. When he read these words, exactly 100 years after their publication, a firestorm convulsed Dobson's brain. He had never given much thought to pigs, but now he became obsessed with discovering the precise nature of that powerful monitor. If he could harness its power, who knew what wonders might be achieved? I am going to devote the rest of my life to what Mrs Beaton calls the powerful monitor in the brain of a pig, he announced to Marigold Chu one rainy Wednesday morning in 1961 as they walked across the sodden fields towards the old kiosk for their breakfast crackers. And I will harness it, he added, shouting. You're going to become half man, half pig, asked Marigold Chu. Of course not, countered the out-of-print pamphleteer and went into one of his sulks. Marigold Chu assumed that this latest fad of Dobson's would fizzle out within hours or days, and she was disconcerted a week later to find dozens of pigs lolling around in the back garden. Standing in their midst was Dobson, holding a large metal cone from which wires and other gubbins trailed. "'Where did all these pigs come from, and what's that you're holding?' asked Marigold Chu. I borrowed the pigs from old farmer Geistigernacht, and this is a rudimentary brain scanning machine with which I intend to locate the powerful monitor contained in the brain of each and every pig. Isn't that obvious? So saying, Dobson approached the pig nearest to him, a plump and dappled creature of I know not what breed of hog, and tried to affix one of the lengths of trailing wire to its head. Being a butterfingers, the pamphleteer turned pig man failed at even his umpteenth attempt, for the pig defied all attempts to be forcibly attached to the metal cone. Marigold Chew did not offer to help, instead returning to the house to make a cup of cocoa and to play a recording by the Bodger's Spinny Dance Orchestra at deafening volume to drown out the grunting and squealing noises from the garden. Dobson came in about half an hour later, fractious and dishevelled, his hair in a frenzy and his cone dented. The monitors in the brains of these pigs, he said, are more powerful than Mrs Beaton realised. 
Even though my splendid metal cone has been dented and its trailing wires and other gubbins frayed, rent or in some cases detached, initial readings indicate to me that extremely interesting vibrations are being emitted, especially by the plumpest and most dappled pigs. Not just vibrations, mind you, but rays. He took a hammer from a cupboard and began beating out the dents in the cone. Readings? asked Marigold Chew. Dobson stopped hammering and flailed a sheaf of papers at her. There were dozens of sheets, one for each pig, and each was covered with scribbled writing, graphs, diagrams and lists of numbers. The human mind, declaimed Dobson, cannot correlate this stream of pig-related data. That is why I intend to harness their powerful brain monitors for my own purposes. Future editions of Mrs. Beaton's Book of Household Management will be incomplete without my majestic addendum, which will probably run to twice the length of the book itself. When I have beaten out every last dent in this metal cone, I shall place it atop my own head, sit down at my escritoire and set to work on a piece of writing that will outshine all my other pamphlets and will shake the world. As Dobson picked up the hammer again, a rustic urchin appeared in the doorway. I've been sent by old Father Geistigernacht, he said in an adenoidal bleat. He says he wants all his pigs back by dusk, for they sleep easy in, in their sty, and out in the open of your garden they'll have nightmares. If you've ever seen dozens of pigs in the grip of night terrors, you'll do as he says. The boy led the pigs through the house out into the lane and led them gently homeward. Dobson sat with the cone on his head, sharpening his pencil but the fire had gone out of him, and he scrawled only a few sad and broken words before slumping onto the floor, where Marigold Chew found him in the small hours of the morning, dreaming of pigs, and in his dreams the pigs were happy. They were oh so happy. Astute listeners may know that that's the second piece in about three weeks that ended with an image of happy pigs. I don't know what that says about my subconscious. You can write in and tell me if you like. Um, Intriguing news from the world of letters where weedy poet Dennis Beerpint has turned his hand to a work of prose fiction. And I've received a review copy of the novel entitled The Unspeakably Squalid Becrumplement of Tadzio Gobbo presumably on the basis that I'll give it a favourable notice and thus boost Mr Beerpint's bank balance, albeit flimsily. An immense mass of clotted nonsense. That was the verdict of the magazine Teacher's World upon the first publication of Ulysses by James Joyce, which apparently Joyce himself always pronounced Ulysses. Um, Anyway, yes, the teacher's world called Ulysses an immense mass of clotted nonsense. And I'm tempted to say the same about this beer pint book and leave it at that. 
Astonishingly, however, this thousand-page tome has already been made a set book for schools, colleges and orphanages throughout the land, which means that your tots, if you have any, or you, if you are a tot, will have to become familiar with it. When examination time comes round, everyone's knowledge of Dennis Beerpint's fictional Farago will be tested to the full. And so, public-spirited as ever, I'm going to try to save you from wasting your precious time actually reading the damn thing by telling you what you need to know. So here's a brief guide to the unspeakably squalid becrumplement of Tadzio Gobbo by Dennis Beerpint. Plot. Tadzio Gobbo is a princeling in a fictional Renaissance city-state, clearly meant to remind us of the setting of a Jacobean drama, such as The Courier's Tragedy by Richard Warfinger. As the novel opens, Gobbo is pristine, even and uncreased. If he were a piece of cardboard, writes Beerpint, he would not be of the corrugated kind. Chapter by chapter, we watch as the princeling becomes ever more becrumpled in a variety of unspeakably squalid ways, until at the end there is a deus ex machina and he is unfolded and ironed out. Characters Tadzio Gobbo is a crude self-portrait of the author, sharing his weediness, neurasthenia, predilection for twee verse and hypochondria. Many of his becrumplements are accompanied by the onset of an imagined disease, such as yaws, the bindings, ague, flux, black bile, bitter colic and the strangury. Beerpint attempts to play up a certain devil-may-care foppishness, but this is never convincing. In fact, it's laughably inept. There is a host of secondary characters, the most important being Lugubrio, the princeling's mad, stiletto-wielding uncle. Beerpint is constantly harping on about his frantic black eyebrows, which soon becomes tiresome. Lugubrio's sole motive for all his actions, from eating his breakfast to murdering a crippled beggar, is revenge, but what or whom he is avenging is never made clear to the reader. Other characters in the novel are a mixture of fictional, legendary and real historical figures. Among the latter are Anthony Burgess, Edward G. Robinson, Emily Dickinson, L. Ron Hubbard and Veronica Lake. Beerpint thinks he's being clever by setting one of the scenes in a so-called Scientology tent on the banks of Lake Veronica, but the effect is simply witless and the reader will struggle not to throw the book into the fireplace. Imagery As a poet, Beerpint has been praised for his imagery, although I can't think why, and the unspeakably squalid becrumplement of Tadzio Gobbo is jam-packed with all his old favourites. Crows, cows, burnt toast, pencil cases, weather systems, the blood-spotted handkerchief of a tuberculosis patient, chaffinches, hedgerows, the horn of plenty and the garden of Gethsemane, mud, shoots, mud shoot, potato recipes and pastry fillings, starlings, pigs, more starlings, more pigs, a nightmarish albino hen and the Munich air disaster are all evoked at one time or another in imagistic ways as the princeling becomes ever further becrumpled.
Does the book have heft? Yes, it does. Structure. The book is divided into 49 chapters, fairly uniform in length. Each chapter ends with a reminder, as if the reader needed one, that a further stage of unspeakably squalid becrumplement has taken place, except for the last chapter to which I've already referred. Beerpint is clearly fond of the practice found in the picaresque novel of summarising the plot in his chapter headings. To take a random example, chapter XXVI is titled in which the becrumpling of Tadzio Gobbo proceeds apace as his mad uncle Lugubrio unleashes a swarm of killer bees into the sports arena during a wrestling contest and a false eclipse of the sun leads to rioting and flux, together with some notes on the flocking of chaffinches and the nesting habits of starlings, an aside in which a missing punctuation mark spells doom for an apothecary and the reappearance of Lugubrio's lobster. Plagiarism or quotations. Certain passages in the book appear to have been copied verbatim from novels by Barbara Taylor Bradford, Elias Canetti, Dan Brown, and the sociopathic ex jailbird Geoffrey Archer. Dennis Beerpint presumably considers this to be postmodernist irony, which is a dangerous medical condition best treated by having one's brain sluiced out with a violent purgative. Narrative sloppiness, untold oodles of it. It's a sloppy, flabby and slapdash book from first to last. At its core is a burning jewel of flummery and poppycock. Brow. Neither high, middle nor low. Not even no brow. This book's brow is frantic and black. See above. Bookcase location. Finding the right spot for this volume on your bookcase or bookshelf is likely to be fraught with difficulty. Dobson's invaluable pamphlet on the shelving of books, which is sadly out of print, will not help you, even if you manage to track down a copy, for as the Titanic pamphleteer readily admits, there are certain books, especially those written by twee poets such as Dennis Beerpint, which resist proper shelving on even the most well-ordered of bookcases. Top left corner? No. Squeezed in among the drivel and tat on the bottom shelf? Hardly. Shoved behind the collected works of Edward Upward and quietly forgotten? Certainly not, because you'll always remember that it's there, and its hidden presence will reproach you every time you go anywhere near the bookcase, and you will be as the lowest worm or beetle, or that which creepeth on its belly in the foulest muck of the earth. Maddeningly, Dobson goes no further. He leaves us in the lurch. He refuses to say what I think he means. Set fire to the damn thing in your garden, just as Anthony Burgess's biographer Roger Lewis was tempted to do with a rival life of the absurd Mancunian polymath. Marketing ploy. Each copy of The Unspeakably Squalid Becrumplement of Tadzio Gobbo comes with a free gift, viz. a paper bag of badger food. For that reason alone, I recommend that you go and buy a copy at once.
Now and again it will do you a power of good to spend a Wednesday morning tramping along a high ridge, blowing a trumpet and waving a banner. If you can persuade others to join you, so much the better. It will not matter if you're tuneless and raggle-taggle. The experience itself can pump vital energy into your blood, oxygenating your brain and feeding crucial nutriments into your integuments. That is the advice I was given by my mentor, or at least by a book handed to me by my mentor, on the day I said farewell to him for the last time. It was not a day I'm ever likely to forget. After the dawn calisthenics, we had sausages for breakfast. I have never tasted the like before or since. God only knows what they were made of. Ambrosia, perhaps, or manna. My mentor was kind enough, for once, to overlook my disgusting table manners, even going so far as to hand me several extra napkins from his precious supply. When I had finished mopping up my drool and spillages, he beckoned me with the claw of Gak, and we headed off up into the hills to that lair of his which until now had been forbidden to me. Had I not eaten such a gigantic breakfast, my heart would have been palpitating. As it was, my corporeal being was preoccupied with its digestive functions, freeing my brain to do the palpitations. Once inside the lair or cave, my mentor handed me a trumpet and a banner, and the book which I have already mentioned, and then he vanished in a puff of inexplicable roseate vapour. I was alone. I waited for the vapour to disperse, and then I strode out of the cave. No, I mustn't lie. And then I minced out of the cave, and I tumbled down the hillside, battering my trumpet in the process, and I rummaged around in my mentor's pantry until I found more sausages. And while I cooked them, I practised a few toots on the trumpet, and I read the book, the passage quoted at the beginning comprises the complete text, and then I unhurled, unfurled my banner. And when I had finished eating all of the sausages, I set out to make my own way in the world. Fictional athlete Bobnit Tivol won fame as a sprinter, and it's not commonly known that he was also a champion player of Mansfield. It's likely that his cantankerous trainer, Old Halob, kept this quiet, for Mansfield is a brutal and dangerous contact sport played with agricultural shovels. It is also illegal. To the untrained eye, a Mansfield match is indistinguishable from a whirling tangle of peasants smashing each other in the face with their shovels. Jaws get broken, blood flows from head wounds, eyes are put out, and all sorts of other head injuries are the inevitable result of a well-fought tie. There's a lot of shouting and a lot of groaning and howling in agony. Volunteer ambulance services are usually on hand, and keen young medical students offer triage at the side of the pitch. It's the pitch itself that tells us we're witnessing a proper sport, with codes and rules, and not just a fight in a muddy field, and it's the form of the pitch which explains why the sport is called Mansfield. 
As with other sports, the rules developed gradually, and for many years Mansfield was little more than an excuse for roaming bands of countryside persons to bash each other about with shovels, spades, hoes and rakes. Often it seems that games resulted from rivalry between one farm and another, or were a way of settling disputes about hedges, duck ponds and hen coops. Legend has it that a passing fortune teller one day watched a particularly violent brawl in which over a hundred peasants were embroiled, a fight so blood-drenched that vultures circled overhead and carrion crows swept in from the west. Unusually for a magus for whom the stars in the firmament were as simple to read as an infant's story about Popsy the pig, the fortune teller had a passion for bureaucracy. As much as he could appreciate the celestial order of the universe, he was equally, if not more, concerned with the lower-level order of rules and timetables and regulations, often arbitrary and senseless ones. They had their own beauty for him, and he was a very mundane magus. So it was that watching toothless and mud-begrimed peasants whacking each other brainless with a jumble of different farm implements, the fortune-teller saw what no one else could see. He peered into the future and saw an organised sport, still a brutal impassioned fight, but one which would adhere to a coherent system, a sport like lacrosse or water polo, or, his own favourite, ping-pong. The mundane magus sat down on a tuffet of spurge and rummaged in his magus bag, pulling out an astrological birth chart for the writer Catherine Mansfield, 1888-1923. Its central circle showed a number of lines, crosses, squares and triangles in green and red, which struck him as the perfect pitch markings for the sport he foresaw and are of course now familiar to Mansfield aficionados in rural backwaters across the globe, wherever the game is played. On the back of the chart, he scribbled down with a Thumbelina pencil a swathe of rules, ditching all farm implements but the shovels, insisting that each side be limited to 40 players apiece, sketching the Catherine Mansfield bob wigs they must all wear at the starting whistle, and adding such enticing details as the offside rule and the so-called pantsil gambit. Intriguingly, the Magus was busy on his tuffet codifying the rules of the game on the very day in October 1922 that Catherine Mansfield fetched up at Gurdjieff's Institute for the Harmonious Development of Man in Fontainebleau, where she was hoping to find treatment for the tuberculosis that was killing her. And she did find treatment for Gurdjieff, the one-time carpet salesman and ridiculous old fraud, had her chopping up carrots in the middle of the night and sleeping, when he allowed her to sleep, in a loft above the cow barn, reasoning that the heady stench of gathered cows would benefit her health. She was dead by January. By another uncanny coincidence, she died on the day that the mundane Magus blew a whistle to begin the first ever Mansfield tournament where the game was played in its modern form. 
In the final, the Blister Lane Gagalo peasantry beat the Panghill Orphanage groundsmen convincingly, with a tally of 43 broken bones to six, more than double the bloodshed when measured in pails, and three players' entrails eaten by vultures as opposed to 12. Next week, we'll be looking at various tactical tips, including the notorious double shovel to the windpipe, and how top teams limber up for a needle match by reading Catherine Mansfield's In a German Pension aloud, huddled around a gas stove on a wild winter night. Um, time for um, one of our occasional occasional um, conjuring trick things. So I'm going to start again. Right, continuing with the show, this is from a book, um, this is not by me, this is from a book of, of kind of parlour games and so on, magic tricks, published um, in the late 19th century. This one is called The Rotation of the Globe, and it sounds very, very exciting. When you next chance to eat an egg for breakfast, do not fail to try the following experiment. It is one which always succeeds and is productive of much amusement to the company. Moisten slightly with water the rim of your plate, and in the centre paint with the yolk of the egg a sun with golden rays. By the aid of this simple apparatus, you will be in a position to illustrate so clearly that a child can comprehend it the double movement of the earth, which revolves simultaneously around the sun and on its own axis. All that you have to do is to place the empty half shell of your egg on the rim of the plate and keeping this latter duly sloped by a slight movement of the wrist as may be needful, you will see the eggshell begin to revolve rapidly on its own axis, at the same time travelling round the plate. It is hardly necessary to remark that the eggshell will not travel uphill and the plate must therefore be gradually shifted round as well as sloped so that the shell may always have an inch or two of descending plane before it. The slight cohesion caused by the water which moistens the plate counteracts the centrifugal force and so prevents the eggshell falling off the edge of the plate. So if you follow those instructions, next breakfast time is going to be pretty enjoyable in your house, I think. Um, to end the show this week, a couple of quotations. Um, this is from a story um, 
by Seabury Quinn, which I think is a, a pseudonym, but whose it is, I'm not sure. This is from The Monkey God. The wind was howling like a thousand banshees with ulcerated teeth, lashing the tall, sombre cedars which lined the millstead driveway, till they bent almost double before its force, and hurling sheets of mingled snow and sleet against the house walls and window panes. The entire north wall of the Millstead mansion was encrusted with storm castings as the professor, muffled to the eyes in his motoring coat and with his fur cap pulled well over his ears, forced his way through the tempest to the spot beneath the library window. Um, the wind was howling like a thousand banshees with ulcerated teeth. Do banshees get ulcerated teeth? I don't know. Seabury Quinn... Or obviously thought so. Um, actually, that's all we have time for, so there is no further quote, um, but there'll be another one next week, I expect. I do hope you've enjoyed the show. Um, come back next week. See you then. Bye-bye. <laughs>